What's the name of your drink again? I'm sorry, Tina. It's a double tall. For those of you who want to buy me a, a Starbucks <laughs> coffee, it is a double tall caramel macchiato with almond milk. And yes, I want whipped cream, even though I have almond milk and caramel drizzle on top of the whipped cream, <laughs> not underneath it. Thank you. Oh, God. <laughs> Hey, welcome to the Night Lounge. I'm your host, Troy Smith. I'm here with the most wonderful, sought-after, Nubian queen, Jennifer Miller. <laughs> welcome, Jennifer Miller. Thank you very much, Troy, for having me. Of course, of course, because, you know, I had to get on the schedule and I had to plan four months out just to get in here. So oh, I'm just glad it. you had to come. I'm stop glad you had it. to come and relax on this comfy virtual couch at the Naughty Lounge. You ever heard about the Naughty Lounge before? Um, I have heard about it. I've seen that you've had some very prominent guests as of late. So I'm honored to be requested and sought after for all four hours that you pursued me. <laughs> all four hours or four months? Got it. Either <laughs> way. Well, you know what? Hey, so what the Naughty Lounge all about, which people are our loyal four people that follow this thing, <laughs> you know, is the, not overthinking it. Not overthinking it. It's for business owners and entrepreneurs and people that's either already in the business or aspire to be one in the business or be a business owner. But uh, because typically a lot of folks are typically in the age of 30 plus that listen to this and they're like, hey, I got some ideas and plans in place, but I got family. I got to juggle some other things. And I start to overthink things a lot. And I really don't want to get into it. And I really don't want to go forward so they get stuck. So this was created for them to actually have some other people let them hear their stories and encourage them to let them, let them know that, hey, it's okay, you're not the only one ever been through it. And you definitely won't be the last person to go through overthinking things, but let me help you get out that rut. Right. Absolutely. And I think you'd be the perfect person for that. Well, I'll definitely try to offer what I know and what I've learned, what I've experienced in the short time that I've been here. Um, and hopefully that will be instrumental in helping someone else to be consistent and persistent and to find some wins. So let me tell you a little bit about Jennifer Miller. This woman is literally... I think she has a, a superhero cape in her trunk because, so first of all, not only does she have a lot of kids <laughs> in a good way, she does it a good way. I'm talking about, you know, people say you got Is a lot of kids. Is there a bad like, no, way no, to have got, a lot of kids? Well, you know, you know, in, in, in certain areas, certain places, if you got a lot of kids, like, ooh, she got a lot of kids. He got a lot of kids. <laughs> that means multiple baby daddies, baby mamas and all that stuff. The greatest thing about you is that, you know, you, you holding it down. You got a full-fledged basketball team. You know, starting fives. Mm-hmm. Two on the exactly. So you got to start five with two on the bench. Mm-hmm. Your husband, y'all been, how long you and your husband been married now? Uh, we've been married for 12 years, 13 in November. Look at that, 13 in November. And this woman is very well sought after with the JSM diversity. She is Miss Diversity. She is Miss Diversity. And not only that, is your family diverse too? My family is diverse. So we have five biological kids, uh, my husband and I, and... About four years ago, we decided to become foster parents. And our first placement was an an eight-year-old Caucasian girl and a two-year-old biracial boy who were a sibling group. And um, they've been a part of our family ever since and were legally adopted last year. So they've been with us for about five years now. And so our family is diverse because we've got uh, a white girl and a biracial boy. And then... Who's black? What was that? 
Is he black? Basically, is he Irish or what? What diverse? Which, oh which yeah, he, so his his mother is white. Their mom is white, and um, his father is black. So yeah, he's bi- so even though he's biracial, you know he's biracial. He's basically considered black though. Yeah, you know, interesting story about that. So we live here in Sumner County, and getting him registered for school, we needed to go to um, the Sumner County Health Department and. Mm-hmm we had to fill out this paperwork for him. And we are originally from South Florida, which is extremely diverse in comparison to Tennessee. And so we got there to fill out the paperwork and it asked, of course, for his ethnicity. And so I let the attendant at the front know that he was biracial, but there were no boxes for biracial or any boxes for other. Mm-hmm. He's biracial, so I'm going to check both boxes. <laughs> Well, can you check one or the other? And I said, but he's both. And so I thought that, you know, that speaks to where we are in some places that we still haven't gotten past identifying ourselves solely based on the color of our skin and going deeper into how this little boy is 50% white and he's 50% black or African American, but this paper is forcing him to choose one identity or another. And I think that that's the way that we can be in society as well. So, so you one of them, you, that person is what you're saying. You're that person that's going to come in there and say, no, I'm going to challenge. I'm going to buck the system. You're that person. I'm definitely a challenger. Um, You know, I like to challenge the way that people think. I like to challenge the way that I think. And I think that those healthy conversations and creating dialogue where those challenges can be addressed is how we make forward progress as a society, become more evolved as human beings, showing kindness and equality towards each other. So yes, I am the person that's going to bring up race at the dinner table. I'm going to talk to government officials. I'm the person that's going to send an email and try to get a meeting. I'm the person that is going to have the uncomfortable conversation. Absolutely. And then you're a black female named Jennifer <laughs> on top of that. But then, but then you're that person that's going to be bucking the system and you're a black woman. How, are you not nervous? I know Florida is its own state. I mean, but Florida is its own country. So that's a whole different ballgame. Right. Being a black <laughs> female named Jennifer, I think, is, is, makes it so much easier for me to get a conversation. In fact, Jennifer Miller at that makes it a lot easier mm-hmm. for conversation. So that's actually a, a win. Um, but no, I'm the daughter of a, of a cop, so fear does not come easily to me, and I'm not easily intimidated. So no, I wouldn't say that um, these situations make me anxious or, or apprehensive. I absolutely respect authority, and I respect each of the government officials that I have had the privilege of speaking to and those that I intend to speak to in the future. But I also know that they are human, and they are subject to error, and they're subject to making poor judgment calls. And that those things need to be addressed by the people that they're affecting. And it just so happens that those people are in similar skin colors than as mine right now. And um, so a lot of the momentum that I have leading up to these conversations is a lot less about me and about the entire group that my body and my person and who I am represents. <laughs> so... Let's 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 go on and start. Go back. You got to go back. Got to give a little bit of a history, a little bit of dialogue about Jennifer in, in general. You know what what exactly? So JSM diversity, your diversity inclusion person. 
You know, you're all about that. That's what you're, that's what I know you from, you know, they, when you ask for someone, when people ask, which we're part of different organization together, they say, we want to bring in someone professional to talk about it. You're that person that people want to call. I bet your phone is probably blowing up now with all that's going on. Man, I've been busier now than I have been in the past two years. That's for sure. You're right. So everybody right now, because, you know, a lot of people, white people in particular, are really want to make sure how can we move forward on this? I don't know what to do. Can you please help me? I'm quite sure your phone has been blowing up with a lot of white friends you may have. I don't know if you've seen a Jimmy Kimmel. I don't know if you follow Jimmy Kimmel at all, but since last skitty did, he had um, <laughs> he called one of his black friends and said, I just want to check on him. The black friend said, hold on a second. I got another white friend calling me right now on, my, on Skype. And I got another <laughs> black friend. He said, hold on a second. I got another white friend. He said, wait a minute. I got no white friend sending me a smoke signal. Hey, I man, hold on a second, man. I got no white friend that's sending me a pigeon. So it's just the fact that everyone now, when you're that person that's about, you know, it's about inclusion, about diversity, you, you know, you're not, you're not one to really, you, you stand up for it and you believe in who you are. And the people like that about you, you got, you got friends across the board. I do. I do have friends across the board. This isn't something I decided to do because it was trending or a hashtag or it's a great time to be in the yeah. of diversity and inclusion. I think that this has just been something that, um, I was drawn to as a retail manager. I've worked for Starbucks for approximately eight years, and I had an opportunity to participate on a lot of their diversity and inclusion initiatives and decision-making and consulting. And um, after doing that for a while, my passion for diversity and inclusion surpassed my passion for sales and numbers. And so I decided to go out on my own as a consultant and have been doing so ever since. I'm moderately successfully, when people typically have an issue within their business or within their board or their organization, and they may invite me to come in to provide perspective, do an assessment, um, create some strategies for policy and procedure change, just give some guidance and some oversight on what direction the business or the business owners or participants in a particular conflict or goal um, or strategizing about a goal, what they need to do in order to get there. And so that's been much of my line of work before right now. But right now, you're absolutely right. I think I've been a lot busier than I have been. And mm-hmm. many other DEI specialists and DEI means diversity, equity, and inclusion. For your listeners who may not be familiar with certain term terminology. Thanks so much for breaking the acronym down. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, but I think right now, DEI professionals kind of fall on two ends of the spectrum. One being like, See, I told y'all that y'all needed me and I told y'all that this was important and I told y'all that, you know, this was going to be something that was going to cost you more in the, in the long run. But I think that a lot of us would fare on the side of this is the marathon that we've been training for. And so while we're extremely busy right now, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to use the data and use the expertise and use the skill sets that I have in order to bring people closer to this understanding of how important diversity and inclusion is for people, um, for us as a community, for us politically, for us professionally. Like this is such an important topic. It's right up there with um, anti-bullying and sexual harassment policies. And it is it should be at the forefront of every director and HR's um, scope of what they plan to address once they're bringing on new hires or when they're determining to work with certain businesses and organizations. And I'm not mad that people are just starting to wake up to that. I'm actually thrilled by it. And I'm just trying to make sure that I get to as many business owners and as many people as will hear me before the momentum um, drops off and, and we get back to a place of complacency and, okay, well, we've done enough and we've satisfied that itch and we don't need to scratch it anymore. And so, mm-hmm. yes, I am busier 
Yes, my phone does ring a lot more often, but I talk to whoever will talk to me and I try to connect with anybody who's willing to hear it because I think that allies are the way forward, specifically when you talk about executive leadership. So you mentioned a couple of key things and, you know, and I hope not to forget them. I need to write them down. But like one thing you said that you're a daughter of a policeman mm-hmm. with all that's going, you're a daughter of, police, of a policeman who from Florida, the, the country of Florida in itself, <laughs> right. That's a diverse pot. But then, you know, you're so how do how do you feel? Cause, you know, people try to lump like they do Black Lives Matter. Right. Mm-hmm. They try to lump the whole thing into. Oh, well, wait a minute a second. Wait a second. All lives matter. Right. What do you say to someone that say that? Let me go back. What do you say to someone that says all lives matter compared to Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter? What What is your thoughts on that from a professional perspective? My thoughts on the rebuttal of all lives matter and Blue Lives Matter and and so forth is to definitely first of all our core competencies are at JSM diversity our consistency um, compassion and composure and so it takes those three things to have any kind of dialogue when you begin to discuss a very sensitive issue like racism and race mm-hmm. and so when I'm hearing all lives matter or blue lives matter I'm evaluating the source and in evaluating the source This is not a person that is going to be willing to come to the table to have a conversation about Black people specifically being at the brunt end of um, deadly force with law enforcement. This is a person that's already made up in their minds that kind of like the dog that doesn't want to see the vomit that he just did on the floor or the accident that he just did on the floor, kind of like turning their face away. And so typically when Mm. you're talking to somebody that's giving you this all lives matter rhetoric, they're not in a posture to hear anything that you have to say. So my, my personal response is, you're right. And my professional response is, you're right. I'm not going to take time and energy and mental focus to convince someone that Black lives specifically are in jeopardy and that this is the house that's on fire. Um, I'm not going to take my time and attention to try to, to shift that person's thought process. My time and attention, both personally and professionally, are to focus on the in-between people who kind of are trying to understand what it is that the Black community is saying and where they fall on that line of being able to bring some resolutions to the table. So I would recommend highly that we stop having this argument that all lives matter and that blue lives matter because that is a given. We know that. And so to me, that's a very simple, you're right, that's a simple okay, because that's not what we are that's not the, the foundational principle behind what we are trying to communicate. And so I think that you can get caught up in semantics or you can move forward. And my decision is always to move forward. i tell you what. I'm going to tell you one thing. y'all. I'm going to tell you one thing about Jennifer. She got the best poker face in life. <laughs> I don't know if she even played poker, but you Never. just don't know. You just don't know if she likes you or not because she got the same face. I don't even think she like me. She got the same face. <laughs> All the time. It don't change. So so that's what I want to ask you. How do you avoid becoming a black angry lady? You know, with all the situation, how do you keep your composure, the emotions out of it and and think through things first and say, you know what? You're right. All lives do matter. But this is what I'm trying to say. How do you get past that? How do you through all your professionalism you have? How do you don't become the black angry woman? When you got seven kids, you're probably mad all the time. I would think because they get on. I got two and this works. You got seven. My kids are my kids are great, and my older kids have been their recreations of me. I got two girls that are older, so that helps um, to keep the little ones in oh, line. Oh, you got but you I, got multiple people acting like Jennifer. Oh my yes, god! Yes, I do. Face the <laughs> yeah, I do. But I think that a big part of how I 
avoid stereotypes in conversations and dialogues about race is I'm always playing chess, not checkers. I'm always a move ahead of who I'm speaking to. I do my research. And if I, if I don't know the person, I'm a cop's daughter. So I'm looking at body language. I'm listening to what you're saying, but I'm also listening to what you're saying with your body, with your facial expressions, with your eyebrows. And I can kind of gauge from there where this conversation is going to go, how productive it's going to be, um, and how much energy and time I'm willing to invest. Because the conversations that I have, since I am a consultant and this is my profession, this is equity. And so I'm trying to determine how much equity is in this conversation and how much it's actually worth to me. Like, are you a person that has a, a platform that is influencing other people? Because if you're not, then it's not going to behoove me to take a lot of time to try to convince you of anti-racist behaviors. But if you're a person that may have a larger impact or um, effect, then I may use my political science skills and my persuasion to try to lend you towards a different thought process or at least put you in a position by asking questions to get you to think about what you're saying and if there's any validity in that or if there's a subject to error. Nine times out of 10, we can all say, okay, well, there's an exception to that. But you have to allow people to come there on their own. But composure is the way that you listen. You can't listen if you're mad. You can't listen if you're emotional. You can't listen if you're just waiting for your turn to, uh, you know, be the next person to rebut. And I think that there's a time and a place for that, that there are, there are times in life where you do need to um, interrupt and you need to speak up and speak loudly. But for me as a Black woman, you're absolutely right. I've got to be very strategic about how to use that gift that Black women have to be very assertive and to come off very strong. And I mean, the only time that you'll see me do that out of character is if it's for the well-being of one of my small children. Um, but mm-hmm. out of that... You're lioness. You know, yeah, and I think everybody <laughs> can, can kick it in then. I don't think that, that that's attributed to being a Black woman, but I'm going to... I'm, I have to be composed because my race and my gender is dependent on it. In the circles that I run in, I'm often the only Black woman in the building. Mm only black woman in the place. And therefore I wear on my shoulders that you may never see another black woman for a long time. And I want to make sure that when you see her, that you remember me and that you remember how professional I was, that you remember how respectful I was, that you remember how intelligent I am. And I want you to remember that I have seven kids and I still was well-groomed and I still was well-spoken and my children are doing well. And I still have a husband I've been married to for the past 12 years. I want to shatter every stereotype by the time that I leave your presence. And the only way that you can do that as a black female in America today is if you keep your composure. Well, I'm glad you said that because there's some black folk that I know that we're, and I would say you and I are on the same type of caliber of stages, right? So when it comes mm-hmm. down to, we, we are in multiple places where we're the only one. And like you said, we're carrying the, the load, the brunt of, and, and the stereotypes that come along with that or the non-stereotypes that come along with it. You know, people saying, oh, you you sound so professional and clear like you wouldn't you surprised. I mean, this is this you surprised that I sound clear. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you sound so educated. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what, what, what are you trying to say? Which but mm-hmm. then what happens? They try to lump you into that big basket. And the same thing with police. Not all police are bad. Right. I don't think your dad is a bad guy. I don't even know him, but he's a cop. He's a great guy. But in, but in the, in the hood, he known as 12 and 12 <laughs> and don't get no love. You know what I'm saying? But you, you so just like blue lives do matter. 
Mm-hmm. What is your thoughts in regards to when they say the term defunding? What is your thoughts on that? Because I got a different thought on. I think they use you know it's hot button word, right? Right, it's, and it's intentional. Right, rather if you got the word defund rather than the term allocate, they won't allocate, won't sell. Defund right. will sell, but I think they're looking. They should be using the term allocation. There will be a a direction of reallocating compared to, you know, putting money where it needs to be and better things like that because the word defund means taking money away right now if you're trying to train police officers to do better you're going to probably need funding so you're not right. going to take any money away so it's reallocation so what's your thoughts right. on that jen please tell me ma'am you're the smartest person in the room okay so my <laughs> thoughts i don't know about that but uh my thoughts on defund. y'all see what she just did that's the <laughs> jennifer code right there <laughs> so okay de- defunding <laughs> The word defined, you're absolutely right. It's intent, it's intended to capture the viewer. It's intended to capture the hearer. Um, it's intentionally borderline aggressive and it, it it's a very playful use of words in order to get people to participate because reallocate police funds is not going to draw protesters in. I think that the activist groups that are using the terminology defund are benefiting from the same thing that social media trends are benefiting from. And that's ignorant people, people who don't know what that actually means. And I think if you go back to look at what these actual policies say that have been passed in LA and that have been passed in Dallas and other uh, cities around the country, it's talking about reappropriating funds and it's talking about Mm. using war training. And so what we are, what we're seeing is a collective of, groups and leaders benefiting off of the ignorance of the masses because a lot of people are not going to go and look to see what BLM actually supports, what they're actually advocating for, what they need. They're going to go off the rhetoric that they are seeing on their friends' time list and left groups and right groups, and they're not going to educate themselves on what that means to defund um, the police. But the benefit for the activist groups in using this terminology is that um, people are attracted to it, especially when you talk about this this younger generation. They are just anti-authority. And so anything mm-hmm. to do with the removal of authority, they are going to be there in the, in the masses. They're going to be there in droves by the hundreds because they are tired of people telling them what they need to do, how they need to dress, what they need to do in order to be successful. This is a different breed of generation. Um, and so when you're talking about wanting to get numbers, then you're going to use terminology like defund because those are going to be the people that are going to shake the tree until something falls. Those people who use terminology like reappropriate and reallocate, they're not shaking any trees. They're having conversations like you and I are behind closed doors, trying to move policies and trying to um, create allyships with different networks in order to make opportunities for these younger kids who are kind of just like, let's burn it all down. And so I think that that is the strategy behind using defund. If you're asking specifically whether or not I agree with that terminology, I think I agree that it, it has accomplished their purpose, which was to get people's attention. I disagree that it is also, you get the good with the bad. So it's gotten more people to buy into these protests and buy into these petitions and buy into challenging um, officials but with that, you've also invited antagonists to create a narrative that you just don't want to be policed. And I think that that is where the problem, um, that's where the problem arises. So I had a, uh, some professional, that was a greatly 
uh, stated statement right there. Thank you so much. You're so smart. <laughs> you know, it, right. That's what you're used to hearing, right? But you hear people saying that to you. Hey, thank you. You're so professional. I just, and I'll be looking at Jennifer like, I would have been sad she'd want to cuss somebody out. <laughs> <laughs> she decide we want to say, mother. But either way, but what, I, what I'm saying right here, Jennifer, I was like, you know what? I would love to know what Jennifer thinks or say to that person. Like, So I had a guy, some friends of mine, not even just one, but a couple to say, you know, you know when the, everything started really hitting the the, uh, the apex, when it started really getting heightened, everything just really started getting crazy. And even people that you knew as professional were saying, you know, these white people don't know, these white folk ain't doing this, and these black folk ain't doing, you know, they just going off on both ends, right? So, and I did a video talking about the importance of how we need to, you know, and I'm encouraging both sides about being change agents. We get in, like you mentioned, make changes, be inside, behind the closed door, make it really happen so we can open the door but then they said but you sound like you saying all lives matter i'm like well like you would say you're right however we're talking about this burning house right now the black house is having issues so we're not going to go spray all the houses and say like that one guy seen that video you may have seen it too let me the fire truck comes out they start spraying all the houses because you're not gonna spray all the houses on they're not on fire you're gonna get the one that's on fire but when i hear professional folks that i know say yeah, these folks gotta understand that they got white privilege. Like, like I'm, I'm lost. Like, you know better. Like, you know better. We gotta get in. Actually, we carry a different weight on us. Am I making sense? You carry, like you mentioned, you you carry a different weight. So when they see a black person that comes in, and you're the only black person in the room, my time right now is to build allies to let them know we're gonna make things actually change and happen. But I'm not here to start being the angry black guy. Am I making yeah. sense? No, I'm not I, making sense. Your face looking yeah, like, where is it going? Sense. I just want no. to hear what your thoughts were, what you tell someone that say, uh, you know, you're not giving them, you're not being hard enough. You know, I was like, that's not my point. The reason why I'm that, where I am. Yeah. I think a big part of it, Troy, is that black people have to understand and white people have to understand that right now, black people are hurting and hurt people yeah. respond to grief in different ways. And sometimes that, depending on what stage of grief they're in, it might be anger, it might be denial, it might be acceptance, like nothing's ever going to change, this is the way that it's going to be. And so I think that you have to have, again, that core competency of JSM diversity, you got to be compassionate. And you have to understand that all Black people do not fall on the spectrum of allyship. I fall on the spectrum of allyship, you fall on the spectrum of allyship, but I do know some Black people that do not care if white people ally with them or not. And their thought process is, hey, if you want to get on this bus with me, then fine. And if you don't, get the hell out of the way. Like, that's their thought process. And then you've got your Candace Owens, right? You got people that don't see an issue at all because it doesn't affect their personal life, you know, the, and because they're going by purely stated data and reported data, which we know that I'd say off the top of my head, 75% of racial bias and interaction with law enforcement in the black community goes unreported. But if you want to be a, a person that's just, you know, looking at what's reported, then you may fall on the Candace Owens end of the spectrum, which are a few blacks, but still enough for white people to champion those blacks, right? And so mm -hmm. when I'm speaking to people from my own community, I speak to them with a level of compassion, of understanding that they are grieving and they're processing that grief the best way that they know how to. And so, yeah, that means sometimes I am going to look like you know, and Uncle Tom, I'm going to look like a sellout because of the things that I'm doing in the world. Oh, you, so you get championed is what you said. You get the champion sticker. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, here's the thing, right? We all, are, our goal is to solve this problem. And so I'm just going to do what I'm doing 
and prove that my methods work. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to allow them to do what they're doing. And guess what? It's either going to prove that their methods work or it's going to prove that, that they don't. And we have to just allow people to process that the way that they choose to process it right now. I saw a great post the other day that said it had pictures of all of the protests that have happened from Trayvon Martin all the way up to George Floyd. And it said, protest, but not like this. Protest, but not like this. And he had a picture of Colin Kaepernick kneeling. It's protest, but not like this. And so I think for a long time in this country, Black people have been driven down paths of appropriateness. And that is what the fight for a lot of Blacks on the left, on the side of not wanting allyship, that's where it falls. It's like, listen, for so long, you have told us how we are allowed to disagree and what's an appropriate way. And every every time that we did that, y'all change the rules. So it's like the line just keeps moving. Every single time that something happens that affects our community, you just keep moving this line and, and I'm never going to be able to cross it. So now I'm not interested in your rules. I'm not interested in your pathways and I'm going to protest the way that is best for me. And I cannot fault those people, although I don't agree with that because of my own personal faith and my belief system. I understand it and I have compassion for it because they're, they're frustrated and they're fed up. So my goal is never to try to shift those narratives. My goal is never to try to convince you that I am your friend, that I'm, I'm a black woman who knows she's black. I have black sons. My husband is black. My brother's black. My dad's black. And I care about the black community. I'm just showing that through the work that I'm doing because whether or not they want to acknowledge it, they're benefiting from the work that I'm doing. When I'm creating allyship and I'm changing policies and procedures, they're still able to get a paycheck and they're still able to get a raise and they're being able to have second chances because of the work that I'm doing. And so that's my goal is to just stay in the realm that I'm in and be able to do that. And not, it's almost like when your kids are saying, I don't, I don't want to eat these vegetables. I know you don't want to, and you're not going to like me for this whole dinner, but you're going to eat this and it's going to be better for you in the long run. And so I, I think that, the good comes with the bad, Troy. You just got to be okay with people not liking your approach from your own. Oh yeah, and that's and that's exactly, that's my whole point of bringing it. Up. I just want to hear your thoughts because I I've learned a lot throughout time that you, but those same individuals that may not like your approach be the main ones to be like, but they're man, benefiting. Look where you at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. they're like, but man, look. So like for example, you had an opportunity to go up and speak because you have a seat at the table. So I'm always encouraging the whole thought about having a seat at the table, right? If you got a seat at the table, you can communicate. You can actually have somebody see some value in what you're saying to say, hey, like, for example, I seen that you got the shout out at the city hall on here not too long ago. Yeah. Like, this past week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, congratulations on congratulations on that. You got to sit at the table to voice your opinion in regards to some uh, to some things. Why don't you speak about that real quick? So, yeah, um, 2020-33 was a resolution that was passed in Hendersonville to acknowledge that black the black community matters to Hendersonville and to death. I like hold on. Let's go back to that. Mm-hmm. I see how you just clicked because we it, in order. So why did we keep the Black Lives Matter in the rhetoric? So I think that Black Lives Matter in the rhetoric because of their um, because of their agenda item to defund police that struck a chord with the aldermen's and they did not want to support that particular language. And so um, one of your your previous guests, Sybil Reagan, reworded the resolution so that it would gain support. And it was saying the same thing, but what a a broken down, not watered down, but a broken down message of what it means to support 
um, or what it means to acknowledge that Hendersonville is a city that supports the Black community and acknowledges their existence here and their need to be um, to be supported right now in our. Yeah, but 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 is that not the challenge that folks say? But hold on. Now you backing down. We're not trying to back down. We need to go forward. What's your thought process in regards to that type of language? I mean, I see both sides, right? I think that there's a give and a take, right? When you come to with a treaty, like, here's the thing. My husband and I sat and watched a documentary about Black Lives Matter most two, three years ago. And we listened to the the CEO at the time speak or the the, um, executive director at the time speak about what the organization was about and what her intentions were and how how many death threats this young lady and and her staff had experienced and all the backlash that she got from government and the government officials. And I mean, she had a lack of support even from the black community. And I heard her heart and I heard her explain Black Lives Matter and not being in a position against everyone's life, but being in a position to where this particular sect of people needed support at this time. And so, I was able to see her heart and I was able to support her vision for that reason. Now, I'm not a part of any Black Lives Matter uh, campaigns or forums, but I respect her agenda. And I think that what she's doing is, is great to accomplish the goal as she sees fit. But I say all of that to say that what she did two years ago, now she's got millions of dollars supporting this campaign. She's able to staff millions of people and give money to organizations that are doing the same things that she's doing and appropriate funds towards racial justice and um, just a lot of things that she's able to do now that two years ago she never saw coming in the future. And so with any level of progress, sacrifice is demanded. You want to lose weight, if you want to have plastic surgery, or you want to go in the gym, whatever it is, you're going to have some pain coming out of... Don't be looking at me like that, Jennifer. (laughs) Don't be looking at me that hard. I, I get it. I think that there's always pain in the process and that sacrifice is needed in order for for progress. And so as you talk about this specific treaty, I mentioned her and I mentioned Colin Kaepernick and him being banned from the NFL and his reputation going down the toilet and, and now him experiencing so much elevation and positivity and everybody apologizing and all of this, these things, he never saw that. And so I think that we always have to be willing to make a sacrifice for what we don't see in the future. And so I'm not saying everybody that makes a sacrifice right now is going to be rich. What I am saying is if you don't have any skin in the game and you're not willing to compromise on anything, you're not willing to sacrifice, make any kind of sacrifices, then don't expect there to be a harvest in the end. Like this is the Mm -hmm. seeds time. So if it meant changing the lingo from saying Black Lives Matter, which I know that some Black people don't necessarily align with all of the things on the Black Lives Matter agenda. Black Lives Matter doesn't speak for Jennifer, right? It speaks for Mm -hmm. a group of people that align with that. And so when you say the Black community, that includes Black Lives Matter and everybody else that falls on the outer realm of that. And that's why I thought it was was a good segue or a lateral move to use different language, and that was appropriate to be done. Agreed. And and that's what I I, I agree on, and that's why I wanted to see your perspective on that because when it was brought to my attention about, hey, what do you think about this and that? I seen both sides of it and I'm like, hey, just keep it where they got to deny it or accept it as it states. But then I also see the other side that says, but look, if we want to get actually in the door, it's going to be a little sacrifice there. It's saying the same exact thing. It literally says the same exact thing. It just got rid of the BLM. Uh-huh. That's it. Yeah. But then some people may look at that to say, 
uh, that's just, just selling out. Or some people look at this and say that's a victory. And I believe it's a victory. And I congratulate you on that. You and Sybil on that too. So Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, but you got to get up there and do that. You got to show your blackness on that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I was there for it. Only black woman in the room again. Yeah, yeah. See, I'd like to say I'm on the meatball and the rice. You know what I'm saying? Because that's typically how it is, especially <laughs> especially in the uh, mayor autumn meetings. Not many, oh, yeah. not many blacks in there. <laughs> but no. uh, so but in regards to this, I'd be remiss to ask you what the conversation is like with your dad, who is a police or former police officer. Uh, those conversations in general, when you you know, it's a proud moment in certain areas to say you're daughter of a police officer. And there's other places to be like, oh. Daughter, I'm always proud to be the daughter of a cop, whether I'm in the ghetto right. or the suburbs. Like I'm proud of of the way that I was raised and I'm proud of having the opportunity to see both sides of things, especially as the daughter of a black officer. And my father was not a, a just a, a everyday beat cop. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but my dad retired as a captain. So he worked really hard to um, go higher in the ranks and most of his employees were white. And so I am very proud of him and I'm very proud to to be the daughter and the niece of a lot of blue. And um, that's something that I think lends itself to the work that I'm doing politically. But his thought process in our conversations about what's happening in the country, it, he's in concurrence that there's definitely an issue between law enforcement and the black community, that there's a lot of racial profiling that plays a part, that there are a lot of um, implicit bias trainings that need to take place across departments. And he recalls incidents that he shares with me of some of his brothers in blue doing things to people in the black community that were um, not necessarily illegal, but were, were demonstrating an additional show of force that wasn't necessary. And he recalls being those cops that were standing around, like how those other cops were when um, Derek Chauvin had his knee in George Floyd's neck. And so he recalls situations like that that could have ended very similarly where you're in a position as a lower ranking officer that you, you know, you're just following through and wanting to support. And then follow, and following the code. Yeah, like, you following like the, the code, code, you're supporting right, the people code. around you. And um, like, you, like you alluded to, there in the black community, people don't like black cops policing them. They feel like, okay, well, you're on their team and their side. Mm. And so he's experienced a lot of that as well. And he's, you know, he's one thing that he mentioned was that these trainings and, and these psyche valves and things that are coming up right now, if you would take advantage of that as a cop, white or black, back in the 80s and the 90s, it would be seen as you are unfit or you're weak or something. Mm -hmm. So if you need to have any training or something, you got to have a psych eval or any kind of mental adjustment or mental recalibration was seen as like, you know, a check on your ability to do your job and perform it well. And so he believes that that's how we've gotten to this place where police officers are desensitized. You know, I always compare it to Adolf Hitler, who people say Adolf Hitler killed all these people, but he really did it. Adolf Hitler didn't kill a bunch of people. It was his generals. It was his soldiers. And so how come they never ask themselves, is what I'm doing wrong? And I think that this code, this is what the issue is, that the code supersedes our own innate human ability to de determine that something that is happening has now crossed the line and that we need to say something. And so he and I have had these conversations, but we've also had conversations about the contribution from the Black community and rap music and toxic videos and our degradation of ourselves that have lent themselves to a young officer who may have heard our music. They may have had um, visuals of violence from black on black crime and these things that we glorify and 
um, we champion because it puts Black people in a position of power, right? And so all of those, and then you combine that with most of the people that you're detaining being from the African-American community, and bam, that is how you get a situation where someone pulls a gun after they've asked for an ID and now you got Philando Castile, right? Because all of these things that you have fed your intellect, now all of these things that you fed your mind, they didn't change just because you had a gun and a badge and they were never addressed. And so these biases come into play now in a time where you have to make a critical decision and your decision that you made was not based on your training and based on logic. It was based on fear because in the situation with Philando Castile, you had a vest on. Philando Castile did not. So even if he had pulled a weapon, you were more likely to be in a safer position than he would have been from in the car pulling a weapon out. You also didn't use logic because there's a young girl in the backseat of that car. And that is an illegal procedure for you to fire into a vehicle with a child being present. And then there's, um, unless your, your life is in jeopardy, obviously. And then there's the girlfriend that's driving. So none of his logic came into play in that particular incident, but all of his fears, his bias, and all these things that he carried with him before he became a cop and during his time as a cop played out in, in his interactions. So I think that when my dad and I talk, we talk from a, a much more educated level and we wouldn't have these conversations on an open forum because people don't really understand um, the language or the situation and people just want to see race and they're all, oh, that's just a racist issue, but it's, a, it's, a, it's bigger than that. It has a lot to do with bias in general and everybody has bias. Everybody is biased based on their experiences. Well said, because that's exactly, I mean, when you think about it, violence, everything else like that sells, right? So when it sells, so for example, with all this going on now, I would think you would think, okay, the rhetoric and music and things may have to change, right? But then how do we avoid going off that cliff when it gets old? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. When it's getting old and it gets tired and it gets bored, you're tired of talking about it. How do you avoid going off the cliff? Jen, rest of my, I got two things. So I want to ask you, how do you avoid going off the cliff of the cliff of, okay, we're heightened. We get it. We see it. And then it turns into, okay, I'm bored. Let's move on. Distractions. I need some distractions. I need them. You know, so how do you avoid that? I think the way to avoid that right now, those of us who are working in this field and who are using this momentum is to align ourselves behind one goal, one policy agenda, um, one movement. If we can align ourselves behind one thing that we want to see accomplished and we just follow that thread, then we won't go off a cliff because we'll always be looking at our end goal. So if your goal is to lose 25 pounds, as long as you check in that scale every day, your goal is to lose 25 pounds. And that won't get old until you lose 25 pounds. And so I think that it's, it's equivalent when we talk about what's happening right now in the Black community in America. The, only, the thing that's going to get old is the social media. The thing that's going to get old mm. is the constant posting and talking about it. But that policy agenda item will constantly reignite a fire under the behinds of all the people who are looking for, for a change to, to happen. So if that policy agenda item is to make sure that all police departments have implicit bias training, then that's something that you can constantly check in on. That's something that you can constantly hold your officials and, and um, your elected officials and your police chiefs accountable for. That's something that you can constantly rally both black and white communities behind. But if you're just out here yelling and hollering and screaming and you just don't even have an agenda that you're going to get behind, eventually you are going to run out of steam and you're not going to have very much to say. And so that's, that's the way that we avoid falling off the cliff um, by just aligning ourselves behind one thought. Having a gauge, going, not, aiming, not doing aimlessly, going for something. Right, exactly. I mean, you got something you can actually gauge against. Okay, good. My last thing is this. 
Has Starbucks called you yet? Because they got a lot going on. <laughs> they got a lot of issues going on with this whole I, deal. With the, you're getting fired for the wearing a BLM shirt, Black Lives Matter shirt, blah, blah. Now they're going to, then they always switch. Oh, okay, okay, I'm I'm sorry. We, you can wear a shirt. Matter of fact, we're going to do this for you. I mean, have they called you yet? You might want to get them a call or somebody, get you some business. So, yeah, I actually am in contact with Starbucks. Um, <laughs> and a few of the employees from Starbucks. And I... I have investigated that rhetoric as well. And what their stance on it is that their goal is for the safety of their baristas and their partners. And that during the last uh, Black Lives Matter march and movement that happened uh, across our nation, I'm not sure if it was for uh, Philando Castile or if it was for Eric Garner, but during the last movement, which is a shame that I can even pull names up to say who it was for. But anyway, I digress. Mm -hmm. There were so many incidents between white customers and black baristas with literally throwing things and some that were actually assaulted that they don't want to put any pressure on the pressure cooker that's already bubbling over. And so their thought process was, if we, it's the same thing that we talked about with the Hendersonville resolution. If we use this particular language, this can be an agitator for customers and we don't want them attacking our baristas or vice versa because of something that's being said or done by some, you know, common Joe that comes in there to start trouble. But if we say the same thing from our own internal end and we say it in a way that is communicating the same message, but not streamlined towards BLM because remember, not all Black people are part of Black Lives Matter. And so I think that mm -hmm. that is something to be said there because not everybody is behind that movement. There are a lot of people that are behind it. There are a lot of people that agree with it, but not necessarily support it. And so they want to create um, apparel that supports the Black community as a whole. Now, whether they're doing that specifically <laughs> to you know, satisfy those people who feel offended by not being able to wear BLM or whether they want to stay out of the political lobbyist format that's being created by utilizing BLM. I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that there have been situations where partner safety has been in jeopardy based on comments and just cups being named Black Lives Matter. So we certainly don't want to put people and if we don't want to go to Starbucks and watch a fight. At least I don't. I want to get my caramel mocha. <laughs> so that's what the goal well, hold on, is. Hold on. What's, the name of, what's the name of your drink again? I'm sorry, Tina. It's a double tall. For those of you who want to buy me a, a Starbucks <laughs> coffee, it is a double tall caramel macchiato with almond milk. And yes, I want whipped cream, even though I have almond milk and caramel drizzle on top of the whipped cream, <laughs> not underneath it. Thank you. Oh, God. <laughs> Man, but do y'all see why y'all need to get with JSM diversity? That's why she's called. That's why she didn't hide the man. Jennifer, I appreciate you so much. You already know that. I've said it enough already. Uh, but what would you tell, lastly, what would you tell someone, basically, like in your same situation? You were, I don't know, how old are you, Jennifer? You mind me asking that? I don't mind. I'm 34 years old. 34. And you started JSM when? I started JSM about, what is this, 2020? So the concept mm. idea surfaced during my time with Starbucks as a store manager. So that would have been about four years ago. And this is our third year in business. So there you go. So 30 year plus, mm -hmm. like I said, those people that's going to be on here more than like more than like a 30 year plus. They had that same idea. They may have children, balancing life, work life, but they got a dream and idea that they're just they're getting fed up with just working for someone else. 
but then they're like, hey, how can I get this thing going without overthinking it? Well, how would you encourage that person to move forward on those dreams? I think you have to be realistic about the time commitment that you can make. Um, A mentor advised me to think through the goals that I have as a business and to allocate time for that while working a full-time job when I was working a full-time job. And I think that kept me, kept my eye on what I was doing because I set two hours up a day or, you know, three hours up a day. I set some time up to get those things done. But what I would love to say um, to you all is that it wasn't until this past year that I had a full staff. I always worked contracted and only had people to work with me for specific projects. And so it takes time. And I think you've got to be realistic with that. And you've got to be um, okay with that because this is not a journey for rapid success. If you're just looking for uh, a get rich quick project, then that's what you'll have and it'll fly away from you. But this, this is mm-hmm. something that you want to do because you're passionate about it. Then don't think of it as meeting certain markers. Think of it as you're accomplishing your goal, even if you got one listener, even if you got two likes, even if you got one share, that's still a person that's taking your voice, your concept, your vision and moving it forward. So celebrate the small wins and work and work and work and work. And when your kids are sleeping, work and work and work. And when you're tired, work and work and work and talk to whoever will talk to you and share it like you love it. Because if you don't love it when you're sharing it with me, then I won't love it either. You have to be your biggest champion. You want to talk about your business. Like if they don't get with it, then they are missing something critical. And that is the advice that I would leave with any listeners who are balancing work and life right now. Look at that. Well, thank you. So when I go back and listen to this again, when I'm feeling depressed or sad because it's one like, I go back and listen to Jennifer and keep going. That's right. One (laughs) like is still a person. Keep it going. It's still a person. But look, y'all, thank y'all so much for That's for sure. That's for sure. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the Naughty Lounge, joining us on this virtual lounge couch comfy chair recliner what would you like to sit in a comfy recliner or would you sit in a comfy couch couch? i really like that okay we got the virtual couch then she don't want no recliner we got a couch for it (laughs) with her with her double tall mocha loca no 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 troy (laughs) just no if you make it wrong i'm gonna send it back okay you're gonna send it back yeah okay got it well look If y'all want to get, hey, Jennifer, how can they find you right quick? How can they reach out to you? How to connect with you? If you all want to reach out to us, please email me at hello at jsmdiversity.com. If you visit our website, www.jsmdiversity, there are all sorts of programs and services. I would love for you guys to get behind our Just One campaign. It's all about everyone in this nation uniting against racism and everyone in this nation fighting for um, racial justice and social equality. So I'd love for you guys to get behind that. That's a nonprofit movement. But if you're looking for me to come out or you're looking for someone from our staff to just communicate with you all on, um, maybe you just want to send out a letter to your Black staff, letting them know that you hear them, you see them. We're all about providing our service to help you create an environment that is more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. There it is. Well, look, thank y'all for listening to the Naughty Lounge. I'm your host, Troy Smith. Remember, the true outcome of having a mindset of successful thinking is having an unwavering expectation of successfully achieving a predetermined goal, knowing that the outcome was supposed to happen. Remember, the two most important currencies in life are time and relationships. Time you got to invest wisely. Relationships will get you places that money can't buy. Mahalo.